Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to In the Finest Hour, a 40-day computer podcast teaching you strategies and tactics you can use in about an hour. I am your host, Sean Morgan, sometimes known as Abuse Puppy, and I have with me Shaylin Allen, our good podcast host. Featuring less cats today. Oh, that's actually kind of unfortunate. I mean, we like cats, right? I do. Yeah, but they don't make for good podcasting. I got Chinese food tonight. Oh, that's basically a cat. Uh, and as you can hear, our evil podcast host, Joshua Death. Oh yeah, all the Chinese food. Uh-huh. Do I have to purge you again? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> when is that not every yes? Yeah, I mean, he is the evil podcast host, so sort of by definition. I've started to like it. Well, speaking of evil... I had a a thought recently, because we've kind of hit, like, the big tournament season here as we over the the summer into fall, that for a lot of us who travel around to tournaments, there's quite a few of them happening right now. And it got me thinking about why we go to tournaments and why we don't go to tournaments sometimes. Mm -hmm. Because obviously there's, there's lots of reasons for both. But I was thinking a little bit about what is it that for you is kind of the the make or break, specifically more on the break side, because we've talked about why we like going to tournaments before. Uh, but there's the other half of that is like, what is it that you don't like seeing at a tournament? I should be last. <laughs> okay, we'll we'll save you for number three, Josh. What what's the what's the deal breaker for you? Terrain. Hmm. Terrain is probably my biggest. Especially nowadays, with how easy it is, there's probably a half dozen different companies out there that make affordable terrain, and, and it's tables worth of terrain. It's not like getting a piece of terrain. It's affordable for a table's worth of terrain, so there's really no excuse why an event should have Planet Bowling Ball tables anymore. And so if an event, if they're going to promote themselves and they're going to put all the effort and have the, you know, and obviously we're talking like GT or a larger level event, but if you're going to promote yourself as a larger event and you're going to draw in the crowd to the point where people are going to travel to your event, getting there and there not being any terrain on the tables or just pretty much no terrain, it's a major detractor for me. So you're talking much more the functionality of terrain rather than Yes, not the aesthetics, the functionality, yes. Mm -hmm. So I actually loved the London GT's terrain for two reasons. One, because that's what they said they were going to have. For the entire year leading up to the event, they said our tables are going to have this layout of terrain, and that's what they made sure it did. It may not have been pretty. Sure. It was functional while it was horrendous to look at. It was. It was was bag smashed assholes to look at. It was functional, and every table had that level of function. So for that level, as as a competitive side, I 100%, I liked their level of terrain. Whereas I've gone to some other events, like I'll be honest, last couple years at Adepticon, uh, you know, you get half half the room, it's literally Planet Bowling Ball, where the other half is like this ultra-dense, really cool-looking ruin. So it's kind of like, well, I might win, I might lose, just because of the table I got put on. So I, I'm not a fan of that. I don't like that. I don't like the table deciding whether I win or lose. It's a it's a bad feeling when you get that. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a definite feel bad. Whether it's the ultra-dense terrain, which can be incredibly punishing for many shooting armies, mm-hmm. or the, the ultra-light terrain, which is extremely punishing for armies that need to rely on hiding units and whatnot. That can certainly be an issue. I certainly have felt the terrain. I've lost more than a handful of games due to terrain myself. 
that's definitely something that can push me away. But usually for me, terrain is more an issue of deciding what armies I bring. There are armies that I have that can function with low terrain or with high terrain, so I can say that, like, oh, I've been to this event before, they have really light terrain, I'll just bring an army that can accommodate that. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, the one that I think is much more of a decisive factor is actually the mission pack. I have been to tournaments in the past, and it's not nearly as common now, where the missions are either wildly swingy, roll off to determine sides, the attacker has six objectives, the defender has none kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or where the missions are just poorly written, where they're they're imbalanced or they don't do what they say they do or they have too much luck involved or whatever it may be. And sometimes you can compensate for that for a degree. You, know, you can build towards a particular mission pack, but there are missions that are just bad and are not fun. Terrain, I might get lucky and be on a good table or be on a bad table or whatnot, but the missions are going to be the same for everyone. I know what those missions are going in, and I know what they're going to look like. So if I see a tournament with a bad mission pack, often that's a big strike against it for me. 100% agree. For me, I am extremely sensitive to the social culture in a tournament because... Sure. If it's negative towards women... It is oppressive for me to be there. Right. And also little things like bathrooms that are gross are just kind of like, I never want to go to a tournament where I can't see the floor of a bathroom. That's true. Let's be fair here. I think all of us, if we're, you know, going to a tournament, it turns out they have a toxic culture. No one wants to go to that. Well, my threshold sensitivity is much smaller than most people's. Sean will tolerate a tournament I will not, for example. Yeah, that's probably true, yeah. Probably because he doesn't see as much of the crap I do because it doesn't personally affect him the same way. <laughs> right. There's there's a big difference there. Well, and also, you know, you are more sensitive to some of the other non-social factors as well. Like temperature and lack of quiet rooms at giant events. I'm talking like over 100 people. You don't got a quiet space there. I kind of find you evil. Yes. It's obviously something that affects you differently, but that's the interesting thing about kind of bring the subject up is like everyone is going to have factors that they find more personally offensive than others i'll deal with terrain i can put up with toxic culture but i cannot put up with the noise the same way yeah all right well we have talked before about this week's subject but it's something we wanted to dive in a little bit deeper to it comes off as maybe a little bit of a commandment but i think it's one that most players should take to heart Namely, do your research. Homework. Well, this isn't about being nerds. It's just that this is a very complicated game with several layers of interlaced rules that have really strange interactions. And if if you're not informed, you're going to walk into trouble. Yeah. That's just reality. Warhammer is very complicated. And it is not always particularly well-defined. In a game like Magic or War Machine, if you have a copy of the rules and are willing to just kind of like sit down and puzzle things out, you can figure out how every rule works. That is not as true for Warhammer. kind of need community help in order to figure the rules out for this game. What we're really saying here is like, there's a lot to learn in the game, and if you want to move towards the the top tier of things, one of the requirements is that you know the game well enough that you don't have to constantly be looking things up. 
Because, like, on the most basic level, if you just want to be a middle-tier player, you need to know your codex. Yes. You need to know your codex well enough that you're not looking things up. You need mm -hmm. to know enough about the common armies you face that you're not sitting there going, what is my to-wound roll versus you? You should just know what that is. Or Admech T3 or T4. If you don't know that, you're not going to make the middle tables. The higher you want to go, the more you're going to need to know. If your goal is just to show up to a tournament and play, yeah, you can get by without knowing any other armies. The more you want to improve your record, the better you want to get, the more you're going to need to know about the game. So what we want this episode to be is kind of windows into ways to do your research, because if you are just a learning machine, yes, you can just sit down, read every single codex back-to-back -back every single day, that's probably not very much fun for most players, and that's not what we want to encourage. It's not what you have to do. Uh, there are lots of ways around that. Let's start with some really basic ones. Readily available, there are podcasts, blogs, talented players in your area, your team members. Yes. Let's, let's take a moment to break each of those down, because I think each of those is worth a fair amount of discussion on their own. Podcasts is one of them. Obviously, anyone listening to this must be aware on some level... But there are a lot of good podcasts by very good players out there these days. Not only do you have, like, you know, if we're being very generous to ourselves, our own podcast, uh, <laughs> but you have the various frontline gaming podcasts and the folks who do them, which give you access to a lot of commentary by some of the people who are playtesters, as well as some really good statistics stuff. You have podcasts by just some of the, the top-end players, um, such as the the Beast Coast guys, team the Northwest team, Colin Sherman and whatnot. Best in faction. Yes, uh, they're part of another team as well. Mugu. Yes, there are a lot of podcasts by just very good players, and that's not even moving into the realm of podcasts by the you know quote professional players like Nick Nanavati or uh, Skari or whatnot. So there are a lot of really good podcasts out there, and there are even podcasts specific to different areas. Most major metropolitan areas have at least one sort of like local podcast to them, which can be worth checking out as well. So those are all fantastic resources, not only for learning about the game, but learning about the meta in those areas. Blogs. A lot of these podcast groups are affiliated with blogs of some type. Mm -hmm. uh, Frontline Gaming is an example. Beast right. Coast is a prime example. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they, they Knights, Knights of the, of game, the game Table, table. is Nick's blog. Uh, Skari has his blog as well and his sort of like paid service. Scared guess. All of that can be very useful for digging information, kind of like picking the brain of these talented players. Like, these are some of the best players in the game in many cases. So when they tell you something, you want to listen. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to take everything they say at face value, but it's worth at least listening and looking at why they believe what they do. So I'm going to take a little aside because listening is actually a skill and not everyone's very good at it. Mm -hmm. If your initial reaction is, yeah, but blah, 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 that means you didn't really listen to what that person had to say. Sure. So if you catch yourself doing that, go back and look at the information a little bit later, knowing that you're going to have this, like, wrench reaction, then, like, reassess it after you've had that, mm -hmm. so you can actually internalize it better, because just because they disagree with you doesn't mean you're wrong or they're wrong, it means yeah. they've disagreed with you. Right. So you need to figure out why you're disagreeing with them instead. Yeah, and very, very much, like, listen to the whole thing before you start disagreeing with it. Mm -hmm. Because if they tell you, like, well, I think this knight is the best, 
and here's why. If your immediate reaction on, like, this night is the best is like, well, I don't think that's right, then you're not listening to the reasons. And those reasons might be very good. It might be they've seen something you haven't, and it might be you've seen something they haven't. So you need to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Yes. Kind of a, another, like, add-on to that is one thing some players think is like, oh, I'm above the level of that sort of thing. Like, you know, I'm a good enough player, I don't need to listen to that. <laughs> That's not true. That's never true. Ask Nick. Yeah, there is no level of player where you can get to where you are too good for more information. More information is better. And we have a lot of information available nowadays in the game. The The game is played at a totally different level than it was two editions or four editions ago. Mm-hmm. If you took your just average ITC player back to fourth edition, he would clean the clocks of most of the players back then because we know so much more about the game. And you're, if you're not taking advantage of that, you're doing a disservice to yourself. Yeah, and a little humility in knowing there are things I don't know and there are things I could Absolutely. know better. Yeah, Just the way you should look at information is, I can level up. I need to level up, dang it. Mm-hmm. Information is the experience you use to level up. <laughs> it's a good analogy. You would never think, oh, I've got enough experience. I don't need to be higher level. <laughs> so you should always be looking for more information. It's always going to be useful to you to look into, like, well, what are the people over in this meta playing? Or, you know, what combos does this army run? Or what is this person trying that I haven't tried yet? So right when you said what kind of combos this army runs... The whole idea of why does it matter what my opponent's rules are? They have to tell me that sort of implied thing. The answer to that really is, A, they don't have time to tell you everything. Yes. And B, there's little nuances and combos and switch-offs. I play Grey Knights, which is an obscure faction, and someone will tell me, oh yeah, I know Grey Knights, and then I'll catch them by surprise with something they weren't expecting by pulling a stratagem out of my back pocket that's not considered very useful, except in this one niche circumstance they have presented me. Yes. I'm going to be honest, it's good to know what that thing is, because if you know what your opponent's rules are, you know how to set yourself up to not get gotcha by them later. Yeah. Exactly. Let's go ahead and caveat this. It is not possible for your opponent to explain their entire codex to you. It's, it's not possible. It's not fair to them. They have to play a game too. You have two and a half to three hours. They can't explain every single rule. And I've I've had players complain about this before. It's like, well, you didn't tell me you could do that. It's like, dude, I have like 45 stratagems in my book. I can't tell you what they all are. Yeah. If you want to ask me a question, I can answer that question for you, but I am not prepared to give you a two-hour lecture on my army. It's just not feasible. When someone says, I don't know anything about Grey Knights, I will give them, I'm like, here's the three highlights. Yeah. I wish you luck. You're going to learn as you go. There's actually, I, I'm going to take a page out of a, an old friend of mine, an old teammate and friend, uh, Ben Cromwell. I know you guys know who he is. Oh, yeah. Ben's a good guy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Ben's an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. And there was something he used to say to me, because I was always of that mindset, you know, how much do you tell, right? This is the exact question. Mm-hmm. How forthcoming do I need to be of my of my army? And he always told me this exact thing. He's like, I will answer any question you ask. 100% truthfully, I will not lie. But I'm not going to sit here and go over every trick, every stratagem, every nuance of my army and tell you how I'm, how I'm going to try and beat you or how you need to beat me. Yeah. Because at the level of competition we're playing at, 
that information is your information to know. Mm-hmm. If you ask the right questions, I will answer those questions and I will not attempt, I will not try and deceive you. And he always did. You ask him, hey, you know, do you have any way of hurting this model? He'll answer it. But if I just turn yeah. and say, hey, do you have any guns that range in on this? And he doesn't, he'll say, no, no, I don't. And that's it. And especially that, do you have anything that can do mortal wounds to this model or whatnot? Yeah, sure, answer that question. But if your opponent just sort of asks you, what do you got? It's like, uh, I have 2,000 points of models just like you. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a loaded question. Like, what do you mean? It's not fair to expect your opponent to, you know, explain their strategy and how they're going to beat you, as you said. Because that's the skill of the game. Like, knowing about this game and knowing how to play and knowing what's important is literally what this game is about. And... If you get caught by something that is unexpected for you, write it down and then learn about it so you don't get caught again. That's yes. how you grow. Exactly. But knowing which questions to ask is a huge part of being good at this game. Like, mm-hmm. If you're thinking like, well, I'll just, you know, get in close combat with them and then I can do this and this and that and that. And you never think to ask, hey, do you have a way to escape from close combat? Then you, you'll never ask that question and your opponent won't tell you. Because it's not their duty to tell you every single thing they can possibly do. Yes. And the flip side of that, and the reason that this is difficult, is that there are a lot of armies out there these days. There are a lot of armies, and we don't no longer have universal special rules, really. So as a result of this, units have little tiny twitches and twinges and variations on similar-ish rules all across the table. My unit gets plus one damage on a natural six to hit. This other unit gets plus one damage on a six plus to hit. Yeah, right. You know, those don't sound all that different, but when you can add plus two or plus three to a wound roll or a hit roll or whatever... It changes everything. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Explaining perilsing with plus plus ones to cast is amusing. Yes. I uh, I go over that one a lot. You rolled a 12. I, not hard 12. Yeah. I, I got a 12, not double sixes. Those are not the same thing. <laughs> There are a lot of armies and a lot of rules out there. And then in the armies part especially is new because there's always been a lot of rules in this game. Mm-hmm. But if you look back to 7th edition, in most of 7th edition, you could point out four or five armies that constituted all of the likely winners. You know, these are the handful of lists that are likely to be able to take a tournament. That's not true anymore. You would be hard-pressed to put less than 15 armies, and I would say in many cases less than 20, Yes, which are likely to win a tournament. Yes. There are some armies you can eliminate, but that's not even that much of armies anymore. It's really not. Uh, I mean, a lot of people say, like, well, you know, Blood Angels aren't very good and Dark Angels aren't, but those are armies that have gone undefeated at tournaments recently. Yep. We have 5-0 Blood Angels coming up. We had a 5-0 Grey Knights player, so there you go, it can happen, people. Yes, and, and that's part of the reason that, like, knowing all of this is important, because there's there's so many armies and so many variations of armies, even just within, like, the idea of Tau. It's like, well, that, that encompasses, like, three or four fairly distinct armies, and you're going to have to fight each of them differently, and they're each going to have different things that they use against you. So... 
you need to know all of this because it's relevant. It's not just that you should know this because it could be helpful, but you are likely to come up against most of these things at some point or another. There's just, there's so many armies and there's so many diverse armies out there that there's a lot of things that it, you do need to know. So... One of the easiest ways to learn about armies is to start reading codexes, and I know some people are like, oh god, textbooks, no, and I yes. agree with you guys. I have read the deriased mechanical engineering textbooks in the universe on thermodynamics. It sucks. Mm -hmm. There's no other way to describe that process. It's not in our history textbook with our pictures, at least. Yeah. But there are actually some ways you can make this better for yourself. One is you don't have to do it all at once. In yeah. fact, it's better if you don't do it all at once. If you do it in small chunks, you learn it better. Yes, breaking your reading up into bite-sized chunks. You know, today I'm going to read the stratagems mm -hmm. or this page of the stratagems or whatever it is, is a very good way to break it down because you're going to be able to digest small pieces of information much better than you will an entire codex. Oh, yeah. The other thing you can do is you can do it, at, kind of make yourself a little reading group, so to speak, where you and a couple other people are going to do it, you're all going to read your little parts, and you're going to get together and talk about them, because yeah. that's an additional interaction, and it's something to look forward to. If you basically give yourself a carrot to get through the chore, it helps a lot. Well, and other people are a huge resource here, because it doesn't always have to be just reading. You can talk to players who play whatever faction it is you're, you're doing research on, and ask them, like, what do you think of this matchup? Why is this list good? Why do you use this unit? Why don't you use this unit? Once you've achieved that sort of very basic level of, like, I have read through the Codex once, and I am at least marginally aware of everything, then you can do the actual hard part, which is learning the, the ins and outs of the book and why it works the way it does. So you can go to that demons player and say, hey, why does no one use fiends? Like, it seems like the ability to keep units locked in combat is really powerful. Uh, and then they'll answer you, and they can tell you, like, well, you know, they don't do this, or they're not good at this, or whatever. And it's getting that insight from the people who play that army that can be a very good shortcut to learning a lot of that sort of thing. It'll definitely reduce that learning curve for you. Yes. Yeah, and that's what you're looking for. The top level of it is going to be the same for everyone, but how you get there does not have to be the same. And a lot of you by now have gone to school and have learned what really does work as good for you as far as note-taking and studying goes. Yeah. You can apply those tactics to this. Don't be afraid to. Mm -hmm. And as I said, don't be afraid to make it into even smaller chunks than you think you need to because this is an open-ended homework assignment. Right. You can get as much done as you feel you need to. I know something that Josh and I do a fair amount is just kind of like, you know, we have all the codices around, either in digital or physical copies, depending on which you prefer, and just sort of have them as incidental reading. Um, fairly often when I am eating dinner and I have nothing else to do, then I will just pop open a codex and, you know, as I'm finishing my meal, read through a section of it. It's not super in-depth, but what it does is it gets you familiar with the book, and that's a lot of what you want. Is You don't need to memorize everything. You need to have that little hook in your brain that says, wasn't there a strategy that does a thing? Because that's what's going to be really important, is you, that little hook will tell you when you're in the middle of the game. It's like, all right, and then I'll charge over here, and I'll move in, and I'll surround his character. And he's like, isn't there a strategy that lets himself destruct that character? Yeah. So I won't be locked in combat? And then you can ask your opponent during the game. It's like, hey, do you have a thing that does this? 
they'll be able to tell you. That's where knowing what questions to ask is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. They might say, oh, yes, but I took the wrong subfaction. Right. I, I can't use that one or whatever. To hone that a little more for me is whenever I go to, you know, I want that, that downtime to read something or whatever, I'll actually pick a unit. Mm-hmm. I will pick a unit, and it's, normally it is insanely random and arbitrary. Like, it'll just be like, I'm thinking of Vespid today. When I hit in the codex, I will then look at warlord traits, susceptibilities, stratagems, and really tear apart that unit in every way I can maximize. Like, how can I make this unit good? Every way this codex can make this unit shine. And what I've learned over the over the last year or so is what that gives me is whenever I see that unit on the tabletop, I've already got these, just like you said, I've got this little checkbox of two or three things that I know that unit can do. And so those are the questions I'm going to ask. Mm-hmm. I think I hear the sirens. I'm out. All right. Then uh, we will head over to see what this whole mess is and catch all you guys on the back half of the episode. Northwest Area Gamers. If you're looking for a major ITC event happening in the later end of the year here, think about Stumptown Stomp. It's a charity event, and at only $55, the majority of which does go to charity, you can get in for two full days of gaming on November 16th and 17th, and it comes with a potluck lunch on the first day of the event. There are a variety of prizes, raffled as well as awarded for both painting, sportsmanship, overall, and generalship. So come on down to Guardian Games and give it a spin. Greetings, Wargamers. We all know that this hobby can run a little bit on the expensive side over time, so I'd like to introduce you to the concept of Mindtaker Miniatures. They buy and sell used miniatures at a very affordable price. They also sell things on commission if you are interested in getting rid of armies you're just not as interested in as you once were before. You can find them at mindtaker, one word, dot org, or on Facebook. My Taker Miniatures. We buy and sell used minis. And we are back. Those sirens were not for us. They were additional bonus sirens that we didn't need to worry about. So we won't. Says you. I'm not worrying about them. It's it's fine. It's not a problem for us. It's someone else's problem now. That's the best kind of problem. <laughs> Good problem. It's my problem. I mean, you're over here, not where the sirens are, so it's obviously not your problem. I'm just tapping into the warp and fixing it from right here because I'm a multitasker. Mm-hmm. So, another question I've seen a lot of people ask, beyond just the sort of utility of knowing about other people's books, is like, why do I care how many points a Space Marine costs? Or, you know, what does it matter what a Lehman Russ can do to me? I don't play Space Marines. I don't play Imperial Guard. I don't even play Imperium. It's totally irrelevant to me. Actually, I'd like to beg to differ. So, knowing what your opponent can do to you 
lets you play ahead. And if you're playing ahead, you're probably able to win because you can cut off their chances of success before they even get to choose. That's very true. We've talked a lot about like planning a strategy and kind of preparing turns in advance, predicting how your opponent is going to respond to what you're going to do. You can't do that if you don't know what your opponent is capable of. You can't say, well, I'm going to charge in here and then they're going to use their stratagem to fall back, but then I'll still be locked in with this other unit. It's like, if you don't know they have a stratagem to fall back, you can't even predict they're going to do that. Your plan is contingent on a knowing about what the enemy is capable of at just the very most fundamental level. Also, one of the things you do when you do know the enemy's thing is you know all of their weaknesses. Sure, yeah. Strengths and weaknesses are obviously both extremely important to be aware of uh, when it comes to an enemy units. But I would argue it even goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about you know units that are good, units that are bad, things that can achieve something well. But all of that is relative. A six-inch move tells you absolutely nothing about a unit until you know what the movement of all the other units in the game are. It's like you can say, well, six inches is, you know, not particularly fast, but not particularly slow either. And that's true in this game. But in a different game where guardsmen move 12 inches, a six inch move would be slow. Mm-hmm. Or if you're playing in a meta where the expectation is like, well, yeah, everyone always brings jump troops. So like the average move in the actual game we play is 12 inches. Yeah, right. At that point, six inches is slow. Mm-hmm. So... You need context for all of the units in your army, because otherwise you don't know whether they're good or bad at things. Assault Marines are supposed to be good in close combat. They are not. Not because numerically the dice say that they can't ever kill anything, but because the context in the rest of the game says they are worse than the other dedicated melee units we see, which makes them, by comparison, bad. Mm Mm-hmm. When you're trying to assess your own codex, you need to know what everyone else's codex is as well. Otherwise, you don't have that context. A unit in a vacuum means nothing. So, again, this is layers of abstraction. You have your data sheet, you have your codex, you have the codexes of your meta, and then you have all the codexes in the game. Mm-hmm. And you need to be looking at everything like that and able to step back like that. Yeah. And it can help a lot to know that about the enemy, like, what they can do and all that sort of thing. Just because, like, it it does give you that game-wise context. Will not tell you how many people I've surprised Wishon over the years. Yeah. I can't Um, count it. And honestly, that is a really, really big thing in the game these days, is stratagems uh, are incredibly important to the game. Like, most of the powerful armies out there, not all of them, but most of them, rely heavily on command points and stratagems. And knowing what stratagems your enemy has access to and which ones they don't have access to can be a huge factor in the game. We've already talked about it several times, just sort of in passing here, but I want to reemphasize that like knowing what stratagems your enemy can use is potentially a game-winning bit of knowledge. Because stratagems are so key to how most of the top-level armies function these days. Mm-hmm. When you look at like what codexes are good, it's the ones with good stratagems in most cases. Yeah, the easiest way to look at it is if you just take an exact army, you take my army, your army, 
and one of those plays with access to command point stratagems, and the other one does not, you'll see the massive dichotomy in those two armies. Oh, yeah, it's not even close. Like, if one army is playing with command points and the other one is without... It's like playing with your hands tied, yeah. Yeah, I don't think the army without stratagems wins a game. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree, yeah. Almost ever, because, like... Most armies are founded on stratagems to some degree. You'll see most of them that have a strat one or more stratagems built into their game plan. Yes. That was something we saw with early Codex releases, was those books were just two steps above everyone else because they could do things with their CP. Yep. Yeah, when the Space Marines book first came out and they had access to stratagems and no one else did, they were very powerful. Just because they had stratagems. And maybe they aren't great stratagems, now that we're looking at them in context. Hey, there's that context thing again. Mm -hmm. But when they had them and no one else did, because all anyone else had was counterattack and command reroll, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to bring a Space Marine double battalion because I can actually make use of all this. Yes. And sometimes you're like, oh, my codex is crap, and I don't have stratagems I can build my army around, like I do. And then you're yeah. like, I only need 6 CP because I don't really care. Some armies don't need it as much as others, but even then, there are stratagems in the Grey Knight book, bad as though they may be, that can swing a game. Yes, a well-placed Psychic Onslaught can blow up that critical tank. Yep, or use, using the Denial stratagem uh, to shut down a critical power. I refuse to use that stratagem. It has been nothing but bad times. <laughs> yeah, well, your refusal has nothing to do with whether or not it is necessarily useful in a given situation. Right, whether it's good or not. There are stratagems that I don't like that I still use. You mean there's a Grey Knight army that stands on principle? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's about all they got to stand on at this point, so... <laughs> I was waiting for it. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Knowing your opponent's stratagems is going to be absolutely huge because so many armies are founded on those stratagems and revolve around them in a lot of ways. If you don't realize that orcs can just pay 2 CP to deep strike basically anything they want, you're going to get really caught off guard when 120 boys come falling out of the sky and you're not ready for it. Yeah. There are lots of armies which can do weird things, and you need to be aware of that. And the only way you're going to be aware of all those things they can do is by going out and doing your research. Mm -hmm. Also, one of the things I've always learned, and this is just in life, not knowing what you don't know means you get to cut yourself every time you learn something, effectively. Yeah. And that's pretty lame and unfun. So if you like not having that unfun experience, this is how you fix that. Yeah. Well, and let's be realistic here. There is only a limited amount of time that any of us can spend playing this game. Most of us are only going to get in a handful of games per month. For a lot of people, it might be one game a week. Some people can do more than that, maybe a couple of games a week. If you're really hardcore, maybe you're doing four or five games a week, but even that is pretty rare. But if you think about that, that's still not all that much time overall. Like, five games a week, that's 15 hours. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not that much. But there's a lot more time outside of those games where you can be improving yourself. 
And that's honestly where most of your improvement is going to come, is outside of the context of games. Uh, because during a game, you're playing the game. But outside of the game, you can look back at what's happened, you can look back at what you didn't know, and you can sort of like go through and find all this other information that other people have put together and discovered, and use that as a way to improve yourself. Games are a great way to improve, but they are only ever going to be a small percentage of it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, one of the big things is uh, metagame, looking at what other people are playing. That should inform all of your list-building decisions. Hmm. But you won't learn that during a game. You can't. When you're playing a game, you only are seeing one list. And one list is not the meta. You, you need to know what the whole sum of people are playing. So going out and looking at what tournaments happened this weekend. What armies won them? What armies were popular but still didn't win? Mm-hmm. That's all critical information if you are looking to try and climb your way to the top of the pile. Yeah. Because you, you need to build your army within the context of what everyone else is bringing. Yeah. I specifically had found out a there was an opponent at a tournament I attended that had to consider what to do with his thousand sons if he ran into me because I was one of the few players he knew would be there that had enough denials to cause him a problem. Yeah. That's absolutely something you should be considering is who showed up to the last tournament I went to? Because if you're playing in your local meta, or even in your sort of regional meta, you probably know who a lot of the good players are and who tends to bring lists. Most people have a couple of factions they, they switch between and have one or two favorite lists in those factions. So if you know there's that guy who brings the same army every single time and beats you with it every single time, you need to be ready for that. That's not list tailoring, that's just being smart. Yes, uh, I have an opponent, Paul Winters, swell guy, fantastic guy. He has been practicing against Grey Knights because he has a zero winning record against me. <laughs> oh, he brings Slanesh Demon. <laughs> so, like, that's not like a shocking thing. Uh, it turns out Slanesh Demons are very poorly matched against Grey Knight. Say it ain't so. Yeah and learning that local meta, not just the worldwide one, but your your very specific local one, is important. It's something that you do want to spend some time doing. List tuning. Talked before how like you always need to be improving your list. This is another thing you can do outside of the context of just playing a game, is you will spend a lot of time writing lists, and probably way more time than you ever spend playing with those armies in most cases. Mm-hmm. Just because, like, you can only play a handful of games, but you can spend a lot of time trying out new ideas. Yes, and that's actually a good segue into some learning exercises, because Lord knows I've used a lot of those over the years. True story. Yeah. Why don't you shoot one of your top ones at us? So, as I said, I went into this tournament season this year knowing I would get next to no games, so I've been doing all of this soft learning. Mm -hmm. And the first thing is, like... Skimming a codex. Building a list with your codex once you've skimmed it will teach you a lot about the interaction between units. I can't even describe how much I've learned about Tau and Orcs just doing that. Yes. One of the best things you can do is once you've read a book and you kind of vaguely know it and whatnot, is just sit down and build a list. Just put it all together. Because it's it's one thing to look across the table and say, like, oh yeah, of course they took three units of boys and two of those and one of those and four of those. But it's another entirely when you're putting it together and you're like, well, okay, I have 2,000 points. 
Oh, I'll take four units of these. Oh, that's half my points. And that's good. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So getting that context, that very personal ability to sort of view the army through the lens of the person who's playing it, which looks very different from when you were on the other side of the table. You should probably know that is like, it's not the same to pilot a list as it to be on the receiving end. You might be on the receiving end and be like, God, how do I beat this? And the guy who's piloting is like, I sure hope he doesn't kill this one unit because if he does, my whole plan falls apart. Mm -hmm. And you'll get that context by building the list and understanding what it can do and what it can't do. Like, is it lacking an anti-tank? Is it lacking in scoring potential? Does it not have a lot of support characters? There's lots of ways that a list can be weak, and building the army will give you at least some insight into what you need to do and what it's lacking. The other thing is to know is like, all right, well, I need more anti-tank, so how do my guns compare against a Lehman Russ? How do they yeah. compare against a knight? How do they compare against a rhino? I need to know all these things. Yes. This is one I do relatively often when I'm building lists or sort of running matchups in my head, is I'll just pull out one of the, the damage calculators, the various math hammer things that we've recommended in past episodes, and I'll just run the numbers on it. Because everyone has that intuition of like, well, I'll probably do this much damage, but it's always good to double check that. Yeah, look at the, actually look at the numbers. And so you can compensate for it. Yes, um, and you really do want to look at, like, how much damage do I actually do to a knight in one turn? Because I was talking to people about my flyer list a little while ago, it's kind of like, yeah, it kills knights pretty good. And they're like, yeah, you probably drop a knight every turn. It's like, hmm, not really. I, I do maybe, like, 12 to 14 wounds to a knight. It's, you know, it's doing a lot of damage to it, but it's not killing a knight every turn. No. And knowing those numbers helps you inform the matchup. If I, if I know, like, okay, I'm not going to kill a knight this turn. That should inform my strategy and, and tell me how I'm going to deal with things. Because if I fail to kill a knight and then I'm like, oh, I should have gotten it. I was, whole game was based around I drop your knight turn one. It's like, well, it shouldn't have been because you weren't gonna. Yeah, so you can have more reasonable expectations. Yes. Like, one of the things I'm learning right now is how much 76 mortal wounds looks like against my opponent. Because I have no sense of that at all. I'll tell you now, it's a lot. Uh, yes. It's a lot, and it's also real random. Yep. Well, and that's another thing that's kind of good to get a feel for. Sometimes it does help to just roll things out. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just sort of like running the math on a calculator may not be useful to you. So sometimes you just, you roll things out and you see how it feels, because that can be useful as well. Oh, that's yeah. actually something I do with random tables and whatnot, you know, like the, the, the Dreadblade and Freeblade tables. You can either choose one or roll two, and it's really hard to get a good feeling for what that means until you've done it. So I'll just sit down, and I'll spend a little bit of time rolling on that table and seeing what I get and how that feels for me. Mm -hmm. Because if you roll up two useless ones, it's going to feel pretty bad, but how often does that actually happen? Yeah, you got to look at what's the, what's the actual reality of it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Another one that I like to do that is kind of related to Shay's point about building armies is look about, like, how many stratagems can I do in a game? How many CP am I spending on a given turn? Mm -hmm. The numbers always sound really big. It's like, this army starts with 18 command points. It's like, yeah, that's a lot. How many 3 CP stratagems is it likely to use? Yes. Like something Che, I'm sure, has learned, having played around with Tau a little bit, Tau are pretty likely to burn through 6 CP a turn. 
oh, yeah, they really are. And then I'm sitting there with Grey Knights who are just like, I don't really want to spend 2 CP on anything if I can help it. Yeah. So knowing what your expectations for CP investment are can tell you a lot. It's like, if you're spending 6 CP a turn, the Tau Army can do that for maybe 3 turns. Mm-hmm. And then it's out. So knowing that you run out of gas on turn 3, that's important. That'll yeah. inform how you play your game and, and what you've got to do, and also how you play against it. Yeah. And being like, all right, do I really need to spend this 1 CP now, or do I really need to have a 7 CP turn later? Yes. And kind of by a, a somewhat similar token, matching up armies. This is actually something that, for those of you who've been listening to some of the podcasts, the uh, a bunch of the East Coast guys have started up a podcast recently. Uh, one of the things they do is they have their matchup Mondays mm-hmm. where they will pick two lists and roll up a mission or deployment and then they talk about how they think that game goes. And I think that's actually a really, really valuable exercise, especially because it's not just talking about how the matchup against these two lists are, but it's in the context of a particular mission and deployment. Because mission and deployment are very, very important to how armies match up. Playing knights with Imperial Guard is extremely different on a mission with three objectives as it is from a mission with six objectives. Yes, it very much is. And in addition, we actually did this a little bit on our Attacker Defender episode. Sure. It's a really good exercise to do, where you just kind of talk out what you think happens. Or if, you, if you're not talking with someone, at the very least, go through it in your own head. Because you can say, okay, my army gets matched up against TJ Lanigan's list. What do I do to him? How do I fight that? Mm-hmm. And... If you've done all the other stuff we've talked about in this episode, if you've gone through and kind of looked at what is his game plan, what stratagems does he have access to, how is he going to try and beat me, then you can hopefully make a reasonable decision. Because obviously this is not going to be perfect. You can't play both sides of the game at full capacity. But you can look at sort of the the general idea of like, okay, he's going to try and wrap me up and he's going to cast his smites at these things mm-hmm. and, you know, he's going to try and use the other models to kill off my squads over here. How do I stop him from doing that? And what's my overall plan going to be? Do I try and hold him off? Do I try and get on the objectives and sacrifice units early on to gain a lead on points? If you don't know that going into the game, then you're going to be a disadvantage. You want to know what your plan is before the game ever starts. And doing this sort of thing ahead of time can help with that. I have a pretty funny story. I was reading Don Hoosen's list from BAO, the one he won. Oh, yeah. And I sat there, I'm like, well, if he'd ran into the side of me, he would have gotten himself trashed. It's a uh, lot less good in a lot of ways, yes. yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, incidentally, we would later on go play at SoCal, and that was exactly what happened when our lists added up. Mm-hmm. This is one of the reasons that when you do have the option to, read those lists at a tournament in advance. Um, it is becoming a lot more common, uh, at least out here, I don't know about for Josh's end of things, uh, but for tournaments to ask for lists to be posted, say, a week or two weeks in advance, and then make them visible to everyone some number of days before that so that they can get double-checked. And if you have the option to study those lists before the tournament, do so. Mm-hmm. It can really help if you have a chance to look through and you're not getting caught off guard by things. Yeah, go look through, talk about it with your teammates. Okay, I'm worried about these lists. Oh, actually, you shouldn't be because blank and blank. Yes. Invaluable. 
a callback to our teammates episode. Teammates can be really helpful in providing perspective on all this kind of stuff. In fact, they're probably one of the most valuable resources because podcasts and blogs and codexes and all that are great, but nothing beats the the insight of someone who actually plays that army. Mm-hmm. And having an entire extra human brain to work on the problem with you. There is no tangible way to actually express how valuable that is. It, it is the most valuable thing you can have. Remember when we said you need more bodies because bodies is better? Yeah. Yes, it, it is by far the most useful thing. It's playing a game with two generals instead of one. It's way better. Yeah. Do either of the other guys have uh, any other kind of like things you do if you're you're kind of doing your research and reading through a book and ways you take notes or anything like that? Kind of similar to what you were mentioning a minute ago, how you you were talking about, you know, trying to semi-play both sides. Mm -hmm. I will actually go through and... Especially when I when I have that, like, you know, you're in the middle of a GT and you have that night before knowing who you're paired against. I will look at their army and I will I will completely turn the tables. If I'm running that army, how am I beating my list? Mm-hmm. How do I beat me with that army? And those are all the tools I watch for going into that game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's reversing the situation, saying, okay, I'm piloting this list. What do I do against my list can be very valuable. Because, again, it's all that matter of perspective, of looking at it from the other side of the table. Because you might go into it thinking, like, oh, I got this in the bag. He's got nothing on me. Uh, And he might be going into it looking like, I I think I can win this. Um, You know, I had this one unit that he has really no way of dealing with. And you might not realize that unless you look at it from the opposite perspective. Yes. Never be afraid to turn a question on its head and look and look at it from the other side of the fence. The thing I do is the more I interact with the information, the better I learn it. And this is just true for how humans mm-hmm. learn things. Mm-hmm. So speaking with people about it, if you're more of an audio learner. Sure. Writing things down, if you're more of a visual learner. I have to physically interact with the information. Reading is not enough for me. So I will take notes on my laptop, I will take notes on note cards, I will talk with Sean about it, mm-hmm. and sometimes I will take out his little plastic dudes that I have not given back <laughs> in some number of months, and my little plastic dudes, and I will play Barbies with them, and by Barbies yeah. I mean 40k. Yeah, well, playing a, a little, like, practice game kind of thing, just like, I think Josh has talked about this one before, just like deploying out your units as though you are going to start a game, mm-hmm. can be very valuable. Yeah, well, I, I was sitting there, I was like, okay, well, how does this stratagem work here? Or how does this mortal wounds work here? I'm going to line up all these Tau dudes and murder them. <laughs> right. Seems good. I have a better sense of this number now. Mm-hmm. Personally, I find that uh, a lot of the online uh, forums and communities, I am part of most of the different 40k Facebook groups. If not all. <laughs> mm-hmm. For the various sub-factions, not all of them. Um, there's some of them that are just... I'm not really all that interested in or are unpleasant enough to be a part of. <laughs> and that's not necessarily a, a strike against all those groups. I'm sure some of them are great. I just only have so much time to research things. And I kind of tend to focus on the ones that I'm more interested in. But I find that reading through the, the posts from these groups, even from armies that I don't play, can be very valuable because you can see what those players are concerned about, what they're bringing, the kind of lists they're trying, and whether those lists are succeeding or failing. Mm-hmm. And the discussions they're having about strange rules quirks and things. I really like keeping a, a sort of 
hand on the pulse of the community there because if you see a guy bring up some strange rule where he's like, hey, I think this lets you charge a unit as though it were three inches away even though you're ten inches away? This works, right? And the whole they have a whole big roundtable discussion about it. And whether they come up with a yes or no answer, you're going to know what that trick is and you're not going to get caught off guard by it. There's been so many times when I have an opponent say, like, I think I can do this. I'm like, actually, no, I saw a discussion about that earlier and it doesn't work for these reasons. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Right. This is another thing to do is meet the TOs with your area and talk with them about rulings they've made. There's so many things a TO can yes. tell you that a regular player can't. Well, and they are the final arbiter on that sort of thing. So if you have a strange rules interaction like that, just ask the TO. Mm -hmm. But knowing what those interactions are, again, knowing which questions to ask, mm -hmm. is where having the, the community voices can be very useful. And pre-asking TO certain things in advance is also very dandy. It's like, yeah. there's a debate here. What's your answer? Oh, good. I'll play it this way. Right. Yeah. Do you have any uh, tips and tricks you'd like to throw into the pile here? None that I haven't really already hit. I've got my big ones out there. Oh, I was going to say, do you want to talk about your notebook a little bit? Oh, yes. Because I think this is one that we have certainly mentioned in the past, but I think it's worth reiterating here. Yes, I my no I have a black book. I have a black book. The magic notebook of Josh Depp. I do the same thing uh, when I both when I practice and when I play in competitive events. I rely more on it when I'm in competitive events where every single time I play a game, every person I play, doesn't matter what, especially in tournaments, I write down, you know, the basic information like name, date, you know, what round of what event, just so I know what I'm going back to when I when I reflect back on it. But I write down what faction they are, like what's the basic faction concept, and then I write down what did I choose for my secondaries, what did they choose for their secondaries, what the mission was, and what the deployment was. And that right there, normally, is enough background information for me to go back and reference, and then I write down every turn scoring, what happened and how. You know, the same thing you normally write down on your score sheet anyways, but this is, when I go back and I tear this book up, you know, when I start researching and digging through it, it's a whole lot easier, like Sean, like you talked about earlier when you're talking about like reflecting back. This is one of those where I actually will wait a week or two before I re reflect back on, a, on an event. Hmm. Like I don't do it right away. I don't go home and right away bust into the book. What I do is, you know, I've, I've had my downtime and my decompress and all that. And about a week, week and a half later, I'll break the book out and I'm literally going to go right back to that event. It's still somewhat fresh in my mind, but... These games now, I'm re-looking at them from a different mindset a lot of times because my, my, my things have happened, things have changed, whatever. Sure. And in, I'd say probably 60, 70% of the time, when I look back through these games, because now I'm looking through them not as the individual games they were, but as an event. I'm looking at it as the LVO or the Hooded Goblin. Hmm. And when I'm tearing through these, I'm looking at how these games tend, and this is where I normally find... If I seem to gravitate towards a single playstyle, a single warlord trait, a single stratagem, and whether it's working or not, right? I all of a sudden tend, oh, like especially when I was running that demon army where I was summoning a lot, that is where I noticed, hey, I seem to summon this unit a lot, but it wasn't doing what I was expecting it to do. I need to change that now. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because it wasn't just in the vacuum of this one game, I summoned this unit and it did or didn't work. All of a sudden it was, I just played eight games in a row. I summoned this unit six of those eight games and not one time did it do what I expected it to do. 
I need to rethink things. And it, that's obviously a very, a very huge example of that. But it, it works a lot of times in tournaments like that for me. So that's why I wait. I will wait a week or so before I go back and look at it. Yeah. Because it allows me to, in essence, have a new perspective. And so, yeah, I uh, that's my big one. My notebook is huge for me. I have literally six or seven of those notebooks that are completely full sitting on my shelf going back <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think that basically wraps up the subject for us. Hopefully, we've been able to give players some ways to learn and kind of pick up new information that they're going to find at least bearable, maybe even enjoyable, because that is kind of what we all want out of this game, is like, we want to have fun with it, and even if research is maybe not your way of having fun, that you're not some sort of librarian nerd, but you can still make it fun for you and interesting in various ways, because there's lots of ways to do your research. Mm-hmm. If you have questions or maybe something that's worked for you, you want help with a list or whatever, you can feel free to contact us. We have an email, which is inthefinesthour at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and message us there or post to our page. We are In the Finest Hour as well. And we are also the same name on Patreon. If you would like to give us a little bit of money, uh, you really appreciate what we do, and you'd like to have more personal access to the hosts, for five bucks a month, you can join up with our private Facebook group and Discord, and you can chat with us, ask about lists, see what kind of lists we're going to, see what kind of events we're going to and maybe even post some 40k memes and see pictures of Shaylin's new aunt baby. Niece is the word. Aunt baby. I like that. I'm going to use that. I like aunt baby better. I would also like to say thanks not only to all of our patrons who help support the show, but also Dank Muse, who has provided the episode music as always. You can find him either on YouTube, on SoundCloud, or Spotify. I'd like to thank Rylan Woodrow for doing our amazing art and Stephanie Sherman for doing our t-shirts. You can find them both on Instagram and Facebook. And I would definitely like to throw a shout out to anybody that is wanting or interested in looking for advertising. Um, if you love the In the Finest Hour and you would like to have your event or your business uh, represented on this podcast, don't hesitate. Shoot us an email at inthefinesthour at gmail.com or reach out to us on the Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. So that wraps us up for the week. Next week, we will be talking about a subject that I think is near and dear to the hearts of quite a lot of people, namely the Chaos Plague Bearer list that is just absolutely running buck wild these days. Buck wild. Or smelly. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a little bit of both of those things. <laughs> it's like leaving glitter on a table except it's stench. <laughs> Hopefully not actually doing so, though. I've seen both. Yeah. I just had an amazing visual. Yeah. You can join the Patreon and find out what he meant. Uh-huh. Ah, so, for In the Finest Hour, I've been Sean Morgan. Shailen Allen. And Josh Deff. Thanks for listening. Wow.